In my eyes, most challenges related to just transition in the United States can really be lumped into three different buckets. And those three buckets are entrenched interests, money, and local capacity. You know, there are, of course, uh, many other challenges related to just transition, but I think that these are the three primary challenges that we have in the U.S. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week's episode is part of our Global Just Transitions Network. Sandeep Pai returns to the program to host a great discussion with Jesse Burton and Joey James to discuss the progress and challenges in creating and implementing Just Transitions policies in coal communities in both the United States and Africa. Joey James is a principal with Downstream Strategies, an environmental and economic development consulting firm based in West Virginia. And Jesse Burton, returning to the show, is a researcher with the Energy Systems Research Group at the University of Cape Town. They look at local remediation efforts, state policies and frameworks, and look forward to how the U.S. and South Africa may further integrate just transition planning into the broader global climate policies. Here's Sandeep to lead the conversation now. Welcome, Joey and Jesse, to the Energy 360 podcast. I'm delighted to see you again after a week and a half when we were in Kolkata, India, speaking at the CSIS workshop on understanding key elements of just transition planning in the coal sector in India. Now, in that workshop, we had directors, executive directors, and general managers of Coal India, world's largest coal mining company in attendance. And you both extensively, I think, interacted with you know, all the senior officials and discussed and shared just transition issues in your countries, South Africa and US. Uh, So I thought like that would be a good sort of background and context to start this conversation. So let's start with Jesse first. Could you describe some key challenges in the South African just transition sphere? And did you hear similar challenges described by Indian coal industry officials? How similar or different they were? Hi, Sandeep. Thanks so much for having me today. Hi, Joey. Nice to see you again. Um, I'm not sure people are familiar that familiar with the South African context, but one of the big challenges here is that we've got a, a highly concentrated coal industry. So almost all of our, our coal plants and most of our coal mines are on, on one region called Mpumalanga, one province called Mpumalanga. Um, and so all of the impacts are very heavily concentrated and municipalities will depend on coal sometimes for upwards of 30% of their GDP more than 20% of jobs. Um, But I think one of the things that really came up for me over and over and over again with with the colleagues from Coal India Limited was so much attention was being paid on the background issues of poverty, inequality, and joblessness in these regions. Um, And so a lot of the discussion was really around the key role that coal plays in local economies and the development that it's brought. And people are grappling a lot with the tension that it's going to disappear, that it also has negative externalities, but also that it was a driver of development. So that was one part. Um, secondly, what was really similar to here, I think, and interesting for me is that that the sense that closures are inevitable, um, whether it's due to economics or climate policy, these closures of mines are already happening. And so planning for and implementing these interventions is already a necessity. 
And I think that's this interesting tension between is just transition only about climate policy and transition management, or is it actually part of a broader understanding in developing countries that you have to mitigate inevitable impacts and we have to transform the socioeconomics of these places as part of like a new development pathway. Um, and then the third part of it was that, and it's very similar to South Africa, is that people have really different ideas about what is going to happen, what the pace of change is going to be, and even the scale of the impacts. And I think that shows how important good research and analysis is to tease out the risks, to tease out the scale. People here sometimes talk about millions of jobs in the in the coal mining sector, when in reality, there are 90,000 coal miners, for example, and that kind of range of impacts, because no one has a really good grip on informality or connections into the informal economy or the induced jobs in a region makes it really hard to to understand those risks and timings. Okay, Joey. So that's some interesting reflection from Jesse. I wonder if you had, first of all, it would be interesting if you describe some of the key challenges that US is sort of uh, facing right now when it comes to just transition and like how similar or different were they when, it, when you compare that to, you know, what's happening in India. Absolutely. Like Jesse said, you know, really happy to, to see you guys again. We had a, a great time in Kolkata. And in my talk in Kolkata, I think I touched a little bit on this, but you know, in, in my eyes, most challenges related to just transition in the United States can really be lumped into three different buckets. And those three buckets are entrenched interests, money, and local capacity. You know, there are, of course, uh, many other challenges related to just transition, but I think that these are the three primary challenges that we have in the US. And uh, just to talk a little bit about each of those related to entrenched interests, you know, there are individuals and companies with, with vast amounts of wealth that have very significant interests in preserving the status quo. I think I used the example in, in Calcutta of uh, West Virginia landholding companies. So a significant portion of, of my state of West Virginia is owned by out-of-state landholding companies. I've heard as much as 70%. And so you can imagine the business decisions that these companies make related to what happens on their properties can encourage or inhibit just transition efforts. And engaging with those companies is historically difficult. And you know, I'll, I'll just say not all landholding companies are, are created equal. There's some companies that will meaningfully engage communities and there's some that will not. So speaking about the challenges related to money, you know, I think it's recognized that money is, is one of the, the key levers of just transition around the world. And the key challenge that we face in the United States related to money and just transition is that our fossil fuel economy is very large and geographically spread out. And the type of investment that works or is needed in one geography may not work or be needed in another. And I think I heard, you know, just given how the, the coal fields in India are, are spread out, there's a, a similar, I guess, uh, issue there. But this makes it hard for the government to legislate grant programs that are meaningful system-wide. And it also makes it really difficult to build models of private finance that can be replicated in transitioning communities uh, nationwide. Um, and I, I think I, I heard from multiple people um, at the event in Calcutta that India faces a similar challenge. Next, related to local capacity, and this is my favorite topic, you know, local capacity is needed to secure money for transition projects then to manage the projects for the, their life cycle, whatever that may be. You need capacity to do the thing. In the United States, we know that there is a worrying deficit of local capacity to capture the, the full change potential 
of existing transition programs. So just take, for example, the Abandoned Mine Land Economic Revitalization Program. This is a program that provides grants for economic development projects on or adjacent to pre-law mining features. And so my team here, we looked into $410 million in grant commitments made in Kentucky, Ohio, Virginia, and West Virginia to see what was happening with those projects to get an idea of you know, is there any bottlenecks in the, the implementation cycle for these projects? And we found that nearly 75% of all of the project commitments were stalled or delayed. And most of these delays were due to some sort of local capacity issue. And, you know, often it's large construction projects. So I guess it's not surprising. But this really shows you that you can't just throw money out there and expect a just transition to happen. It takes some really hard work at the grassroots level for things to succeed. And, you know, I think the event in Calcutta was really, really powerful for, for me personally, because hearing my experience, you hear um, there's a lot of differences between the India coal sector and the way that the, the, the coal sector works in the United States. But we face a lot of the same challenges. And I think the, the issues related to entrenched interests, money and capacity are, are, are shared. Wonderful. I think that's a, that's a great summary. And I can tell you that even local capacity in India is also a major, major challenge for implementing anything. But let's move on to policy initiatives. So let's start with Joey this time. Uh, what are some of the key policy initiatives in in United States that have been undertaken by you know the federal government, the state governments, or any other entities uh, when it comes to you know just transition? Yeah, so there's a lot of really exciting things happening right now in the United States to prepare us to meet the, the just transition challenge. So the big one that I think is on everybody's mind is the Inflation Reduction Act, which was signed into law less than a month ago. You know, it's, it is the most significant climate legislation in the United States history, and it's provoking conversations really at all levels of government throughout the private sector about, you know, how we um, make use of this, of this new legislation. So the $370 million package is expected to reduce U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by more than 40% by 2030. And it does that without actually mandating any fossil fuel reductions. It does so through an elaborate system of tax incentives, grant programs, you know, government-backed loan funds, and a lot of other types of, of programs. So as a person living in a state that gets 90% of its electricity from coal-fired power plants under a cost-of-service regulation model, one of the most exciting things for me in the Inflation Reduction Act is a couple of provisions that unlock opportunities for utilities to securitize stranded assets costs. So, you know, in a roundabout way, it greatly reduces the cost of retiring existing coal generation, which lowers electricity rates for customers, and also opens up opportunities for brand new, lower carbon sources of energy, which has been a huge challenge in states that have aging coal fleets. So another exciting thing under the Inflation Reduction Act is, of course, the, the extension and expansion of the solar investment tax credit. So the law restores the value of the tax credit up to 30% and extends its benefits to nonprofits and government entities, which historically have been excluded from the credit. 
It also provides, and this is a really cool thing related to Just Transition, additional PACs incentives for projects that take place in environmental justice communities. So all of these new or rejuvenated federal programs, you know, they require significant support at the, the state and local level in order to, to truly maximize their benefits. And for that, I think we're beginning to see a lot of states stepping up in, in real big ways to support a just transition. And, you know, this just isn't happening in, in states that have explicit just transition legislation like Colorado. You know, just a couple of examples. Earlier this year, Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio uh, signed a law releasing $500 million in funding to restore historic downtowns, improve community health, and basically rebuild, retrain the local workforce in Ohio's 32 Appalachian counties. So these are counties that are adversely impacted by by the decline of coal. And right across the river in in my state of of West Virginia, the state legislature passed a bill uh, that that creates a governor-appointed coal communities grant facilitation committee whose mission will be to seek and funnel available federal funds to coal field communities throughout the state. So I think, you know, there's broad recognition in most coal states that, that I work in that there are a lot of federal programs out there. Again, there's needed local capacity to actually go after those programs. So this establishes that that capacity in West Virginia, which is, I think, really, really, it's a game changer for us long term. Thank you, Joey. That's that's really comprehensive. Jesse, if you want to describe all the initiatives that are being undertaken at every level in South Africa. <laughs> I won't describe every initiative, but to start, I think it's fascinating when I talk a little bit about the history of the policy development and how South Africa has gotten to where it is today, we aren't at the stage where we're operationalizing to the same degree as the US yet. I think there's a lot more development of policy frameworks and kind of stakeholder engagements and what in South Africa are called social partners, business, labor, civil society, the youth deciding together what they think just transition means. And that's kind of where a lot of the political attention has been. And we need now to get to the place where we start to operationalize analyze these what I'll explain are really interesting principles, I think. So the most exciting thing that's just happened about two weeks ago is that the South African cabinet approved our national just transition framework. Um, And the framework was developed over, gosh, 18 months or two years. It's um, developed under the auspices of our presidential climate commission, which is this social partner, multi-stakeholder commission, uh, which exists to provide advice around climate action in South Africa. Um, and it, what it has done is it's embedded a whole lot of principles now within the South African context about what just transition means. We'd had just transition in our climate change white paper since 2011 kind of mentioned, but not, not much more than that. It was in our first NDC in 2015. It was in our second NDC discussed quite a lot. Um, and other parts of government had also been developing kind of sector approaches. So our Department of Mineral Resources and Energy had produced a just energy transition framework last year. And Pumalanga themselves have been working on a transition strategy, but now we have kind of a guiding document for the whole country. 
Um, and the interesting part of it is that it, it says that there are three main principles, and those principles are procedural, distributive, and restorative justice. Um, and the procedural element just says workers, communities, and small businesses must be empowered and supported in the transition to define their own development and their own livelihoods. Distributive justice is, is really say, you know, pointing out that the risks and opportunities have to be distributed fairly. And restorative justice is a really interesting one because it brings to the fore that there are historical damages in the South African economy related to our particular histories, but also related to, to the energy sector and other and, um, and it basically says historical damages against individuals, communities, and the environment need to be addressed. So you've got to rectify situations of harmed communities and provide redress. Um, and then there are a set of policy interventions. So those three are social protection, human resource development, and skills development, um, and industrial development, economic diversification, and innovation. So that kind of provides the guiding framework. But really now we have to start to operationalize it. So what does that look like for a region? What does it, you know, if you're an affected region like in Pumalanga, or what does it look like for a value chain like agriculture or a value chain like automotive manufacturing? And that's the other part. Uh, I think globally, a lot of attention in just transition is really around fossil fuel value chains. But in South Africa, we also include value chains that might be impacted by climate change impacts by the physical effects of climate change. So that was the one kind of really exciting part of it. I mentioned the DMRE's JET framework that obviously has quite a lot of focus on the core value chain and on workers and communities, but it also says kind of takes as its approach, we have to mitigate impacts, but we also need to embrace the opportunities of structural transformation. So how do we make new energy sectors, new value chains work well for people? So that's the, the kind of two national elements. Other social partners have also been developing. And in fact, organized labor were really the drivers of just transition and getting just transition in South Africa's climate policy, but they've also produced um, a blueprint on what Labour's views are on just transition. And it, it's also a very broad and progressive view. And it's, you know, from eco-feminist socialism all the way through to mine rehab to social or public ownership to, of course, retraining, reskilling and redeploying workers who are going to be impacted. Um, so there's quite a broad range of, of what is covered in, in, in some of these, these documents. Then um, what is maybe interesting in the region in Mpumalanga is they developed a transition strategy, a kind of baseline assessment around just transition, a few that'll come up sometime this year. Um, and linked to that, the, the province has set up something called the Green Economy Cluster Agency. And the idea there is to have a, a government-associated but independent entity that can really focus on developing the green economy in the region. Um, and they've, they're kind of just in the setting up stage. They've been setting themselves up over the last sort of year or 18 months as well. A lot of stuff happening in the last 18 months in South Africa. They will target water, agriculture, and energy as, as new, new areas of, of economic growth for the, for the province. So one of the things that I really like about this conversation in particular is that, you know, in United States that Joey is describing, implement, we are at the implementation stage. In South Africa, you know, we are about to implement or, you know, the to setting up processes to implement. And in India, the conversations are starting. So it's kind of in the arc of just transition, you know, three countries are at very different stages. So that's something really useful. So, so let's pick up on one theme that actually both of you mentioned in your previous answers, which is, you know, local community. So there's a lot of interest that we see about just transitions nationally and internationally. And, and I appreciate how hard this is, but are the local coal communities, you know, consulted in all these 
documents that are being produced in South Africa or all the work that is being implemented in US. Like to what degree do you think that consultation is happening? And if somewhere that consultation has happened in an effective way, I would love to hear some examples. Let's start with Joey. Great. Yeah. So I guess speaking directly from my experience, I don't think that frontline communities are involved enough in policymaking on, on just transitions. But I think our institutions are in the US are, are learning from, from their mistakes and in many cases now making good faith efforts to consult those with lived experience. So I, I think one thing is, is clear that you know if, if we don't involve frontline communities at every stage of the just transition process, there will be no just transitions. So one example, I guess, of you know something that, that happened here recently in, in West Virginia is related to the formation of that grants facilitation committee. So prior to the, the, the formation of that grants facilitation committee, the West Virginia State Legislature established a coal community comeback committee, which went on a listening tour around the state, visiting coal communities in the northern and, and southern coal fields of, of West Virginia to understand the, what the challenges are and identify key themes so that they could then draft you know, state-level policy to address those problems. And obviously, they, they heard from communities that one of the issues that they had was related to grant writing. And so that's that's where their initial focus is. And so I think, um, like I said, historically, I think we have not involved frontline communities enough, but now I think, you know, we're, we're beginning to, to get more involved. Jesse, your thoughts on that? So I would tend to agree. I mean, absolutely, you can't have a just transition where people are not involved in it. And for, But for me, there's also a tension. So I can't have a just transition if there's no action. If there's no transition, it can't be just. And so there's often this, this hesitancy that says, if people don't want something, therefore we're going to do nothing. Um, and I think that also doesn't help. But but I think that in, in South Africa, the, the kind of challenge has been almost a little bit different. We have, since the end of apartheid, we've got consultation coming out of people's ears to some extent. We've got formal processes to bring social partners together. We have all sorts of conversations that happen endlessly. In fact, a colleague said to me that, that she thinks a lot of mining communities have like perpetual engagement, you know, the endless engagement, she called it, you know, where they are caught in an engagement process with the mine for 20 years and nothing happens. So also this kind of engagement isn't just about consultation. It's actually listening. And of course, it has to include also acting and, you know, and so empowering communities to make decisions about their futures. And I think there maybe is a sweet spot where you can't go into places that have been disempowered for years, for decades, for 100 years in some cases, I think of of um, that great book, Power and Powerlessness in, in an Appalachian Valley, and expect people to just magically have SMMEs that need financing or to magically have, and maybe there is, is a kind of a suppressed imagination that should be supported, but it's also too much, I think, to expect people to just have an idea about what they want immediately on the ground, you know? So that's the, the other part of it. The, the Presidential Climate Commission also, interestingly, in their process for the, for the national framework, went to communities 
interviews. They went across provinces. Um, in Mpumalanga, they went to a few towns, a few times, and they also host kind of ongoing events, which are on Facebook. There are ways to get people free data and things like that. So people can access it because that's, uh, you know, if you have, you even, you know, having internet and being able to can't go to Johannesburg to be a part of some of these policy discussions. But interestingly, in a lot of those engagements, the things that people brought up weren't about climate action all the time. They were about service delivery. So they were about housing and water and food insecurity and safety, things that faced them in their everyday lives. They were about the mines that were blasting or hadn't um, complied with their social and labor plans. You know, those kinds of things came up over and over again. And I think that also shows what a colleague of mine, Gaylor, who's been on one of your episodes before, always says, we're not starting from a place of justice. So it's not a perfect situation. And now we're only going to make it better. We're like behind. <laughs> we're really behind. And we have to address people's basic needs also as part of this process. In my opinion, I think the top down and the bottom up, it, you can't really have a complete bottom up process if you want to implement something. So you kind of have to have that sweet spot. So I agree with you. But regardless, let's talk about one very concrete just transition strategy that has been emerging around the world, actually, if I may, which is the remediation of coal infrastructure, right? So many of coal plants are closing around the world, even in if countries like India, where the coal fleet is expanding, actually, regionally, lots of coal plants, lots of coal mines are closing. And so this has become a really important tool to enable you know economic development in local areas, like how do you remediate that land and use that land to enable clean energy projects and therefore create jobs. So what I want to ask, and let's start with Joey this time, what are the key initiatives on making sure previous coal mining and power sites are remediated to create local jobs in the United States? Yeah, so this is a really popular topic, Sandeep, as you mentioned, worldwide. So, and I think it's really because it provides a, a logical bridge for fossil fuel workers between the economy today and the, the economy tomorrow. You know, the same type of equipment operators, truck drivers, other laborers that worked on coal mines when they were in operation can be put to work remediating the sites, relatively little retraining. And, you know, actually there's opportunities to, to reuse other assets related to coal mine operations, equipment and, and other things um, in the remediation process. So there's, there's quite a few initiatives to encourage this type of activity on mine sites in the US. But one of the big ones that we're kind of gearing up for here now is the Abandoned Mine Land Grant Program, which was created as part of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act of 2021. So the US has a significant amount of abandoned mine lands. Um, so these are mine sites that were mined prior to the passage of the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act of 1977. So the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act of 1977, I think most people know what that is, but you know, it basically established minimum standards for, for reclamation, a system of bonding for mines that were mined afterwards. So the federal database used to track these pre-law mine sites has identified about $11.3 billion in reclamation liabilities that need to be addressed. So the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act of 2021 provides $11.3 billion in funding through this abandoned mine land grant program to, to, to states that are, are grappling uh, you know, with abandoned mine land issues. So money is proportionally distributed to each state based on their reclamation liabilities. 
So again, using my state of, of West Virginia as, as an example, West Virginia stands to receive about $2 billion in funding through the Abandoned Mine Land Grant Program, which economists on my team project will support about 2,000 jobs in West Virginia over the next 15 years. So the, there's a 15-year spending plan for, for that funding. So it's really going to get a lot of existing coal workers in the state to retirement age. Um, so, you know, as mines are shutting down, there are people that are, you know, they're not young workers, but they're not at retirement age. They're kind of in the middle. And, you know, that's, I think, who this program is really going to benefit. And that's another program that I could have that I could have brought up is the abandoned mine lane economic revitalization program because I think that it is highly replicable. Right. Um, but you know, essentially, the abandoned mine lane economic revitalization program, the abandoned mine lane economic revitalization program provides economic development funds for projects that happen on or adjacent to pre-law mining features, and it's been piloted in the Appalachian coal fields. I guess to varying success in different states, but we've we've really gotten some great innovative projects off the ground. Projects related to agriculture, energy, just kind of more conventional or classic industry, and it's an exciting program. You know, the, there's really a high level of local coordination and capacity needed to ensure that these jobs go to those people that need them and that we're, we're very strategic about you know the deployment of those funds in communities that that are grappling with a with a loss of coal jobs uh, thank you jesse your thoughts on some of the key initiatives uh, maybe it's currently they are at planning stage in the south african context when it comes to remediation of or repurposing of coal infrastructure so one, Joey, I have a lot of questions because I think that's an amazing grant program and it's something that South Africa needs. And Pumalanga has 800 derelict and ownerless, which is our word for abandoned coal mines. Um, and this, and they're like a major cause of acid mine drainage in the region. They impact all the downstream catchments. You know, it's a, it, it would be a huge investment in food and water security, but it would also be a as you say, like a huge potential employer in the region. In South Africa, a lot of the focus at the moment, there is some on mining and I'll come back to that, but a lot of the focus at the moment has been on repowering and repurposing the first of ESCOM. ESCOM is our monopoly utility, the first of ESCOM's coal plants that has reached the end of its life. So it's the Kamati plant. It was built in the 1960s and in fact, its last unit shuts down this month. And ESCOM have got a just energy transition office who have, you know, Kamati is their flagship to think about how do you have a pilot for this kind of repurposing? Like, how do you, what do we do? How do we do retraining? What are the kind of repurposing and repowering things that will, will, will be included there? And so at Kamati, what they're going to do is they're going to um, repower the plant with some renewables. Um, they're also going to do some repurposing initiatives in the town nearby. The local town is also called Kamati Town, and but there are some others nearby as well. There'll be some community development initiatives. And the one really exciting thing is that they are developing with what is called here, like a, a technical university, a renewable energy training center. And that will be both for ESCOM workers, also for miners and local communities who are qualified to enter the program. Um, and we're really lucky. Um, it's very different to, to some of the coal regions in India, for example, but there is pretty good renewable resources in our in, in the coal region. But we've also got a lot of transmission capacity available there so we, that we need to use because we're behind on rolling out some of the, the transmission to other areas. 
Um, and so this is a really exciting opportunity just to do some of the retraining and, and redeployment that Joey was talking about in terms of the mining. There are also a lot of things going on in the mining sector, but it's a little bit fragmented in some ways. I mean, there are some amazing projects. There's something that people here called the Unicorn Project, which is a huge mine land repurposing project being developed by one of the mining houses. Up to a million livelihoods could be sustained on it. You know, it's a remediation and a repurposing project. But one of the really interesting findings from some work by, by TIPS is, and this comes back to the points Joe was making earlier, when you need local capacity too, though, you also need to turn these project ideas, which can be amazing, into, into bankable projects. And getting it over the line is really complicated. So you need project preparation facilities. You need particular kind of financiers. You need expertise in how you might structure these financial deals to kind of get these things to move. And I think that's a, a like an interesting place for South Africa as well. And so I think there's some work now going on around how you might also get the finance system to think a little bit more about their social ambition. Like how do you actually have, what are just transition projects? Okay. So I want to ask a last question, which is sort of, you know, taking a step back and thinking a bit big picture. The clean energy ministerial is happening later this month, where just transition is sort of become a major theme of discussion. And COP is also happening within two months in Egypt. And so how do you think, you know, both South Africa and US will approach just transition issues at these international forums? Let's start with Jesse first and then we'll go to Joey. So uh, Minister Creasy, who's the, the Minister of Environment in South Africa, just, just said this week that South Africa is planning to complete its Just Energy Transition Partnership, its JP investment plan, before the COP starts. So I imagine that when the COP comes, the world will be watching with huge excitement to look at this first-of-its-kind approach. And the, and the JP is essentially a financing offer from developed countries to, to South Africa to help South Africa implement its, its just transition. And I think South Africa will definitely be approaching just transition as a key element at these international forums in light of this, this huge JP process that's been ongoing in the, over the last 12 months. Okay. Joey, your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I think it kind of goes without saying, or could go without saying, that the the U.S. has historically been, you know, very inconsistent when it comes to leadership at these these international climate forums. And I think the U.S.'s failure to fully implement some of its signature climate policies, you know, that were developed under the Obama administration, isn't really a good look. But the the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act could not have come at a better time for the U.S. to show up to these international forums and show that, you know, we're, we're putting our money where our mouth is and uh, when it comes to climate change and just transition, you know, hopefully inspire other countries to do the same. Well, thank you both. This was a really interesting conversation. Thanks to Joey, Jesse, and Sandeep for joining us this week for that great discussion on just transitions in the United States and South Africa. There's links in our show description for more reading on Just Transitions and for more on the Global Just Transition Network at CSIS. As always, follow us on Twitter for more information at CSIS Energy. And thanks for listening.